Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Premier Kenny, we've known each other, and I, I want to be clear about this. We've known each other for 35 years. I've always liked you personally. I liked you when you were the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I like you today. How are you assessing your current situation as premier of the province of Alberta, given all the challenges that have arisen? Some, uh, I, you know, said by my listeners that are those of your own creating, others that you inherited. How are you assessing your own situation today? Well, good to be back on the program, Roy. I, I would assess the situation as being a, a really uh, serious crisis with respect to this fourth wave of COVID-19. Uh, as you know, this is a, a disease that has challenged uh, governments in every part of the world, of every uh, partisan stripe across the political spectrum. Uh, and I think Alberta has done pretty well. Albertans have risen to the challenge through the first 18 months of the pandemic with a much lower fatality rate than Canada, much lower than the U.S. and Europe and generally doing that with less damaging restrictions. But we have been hit hard with this fourth wave, uh, primarily because we went into this uh, with the lowest vaccination rate in Canada, I would say, despite our best efforts. You know that uh, Alberta's uh, political culture is is unique in some ways. Uh, a lot of freedom-loving people here, which I always think is a great asset of this province. But um, it also means that we have uh, probably a larger share of the population who have throughout this been uh, unwilling to to follow public health guidelines and, and in the, in the, uh, since we started vaccination, I'm willing to get vaccinated. So we have a larger vulnerable population to the disease who increasingly are showing up in our hospitals, putting huge stress on them. We've taken the measures that are necessary, but in the debate that you just referenced, you know, we have a, uh, we've always had a very sadly divisive and, and wide ranging uh, debate in the province. Some people who from the beginning have wanted sort of hard sustained lockdowns, which we didn't think would it would be justifiable in terms of their damage and others who have wanted virtually no measures and 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 uh, a small minority who are outspokenly opposed to the vaccines so this is a very difficult context in, in which to govern we're, we're doing our best and uh, I, i'm uh, i'm hopeful that because we've seen a stabilization of numbers that we will get through this fourth wave and get back to some some positives including the fact that alberta is leading canada in economic growth this year okay why did you replace your Minister of Health? Well, he offered his resignation. Uh, it's been a, a brutally tough 18 months. And and, and really, uh, for, for him and our government, a tough couple of years. In, in The health department is always the most difficult portfolio, I think, in any Canadian provincial government. Um, and uh, he and I both came to the conclusion that it was, it was time uh, to have a fresh set of eyes and new perspective on that huge department, which is you know, well over 40% of our spending, um, and uh, so I, I thank Tyler for his service and, and uh, invited a, a new minister who's done a great job at, at Labour Immigration, Jason Copping, to bring a fresh perspective there. So 
So, uh, you know, uh, I've spoken to a number of former health ministers, and they say the average duration of a health minister in this province is about two years. Tyler was there for two and a half, carrying a huge burden, including through the pandemic. Uh, Since um, the COVID pandemic hit, there are so many variables uh, have been in play and continue to be in play. So uh, when you look at the state of uh, COVID in Alberta today, Dr. Dina Henshaw has said 100% of new COVID ICU admissions in Alberta are people who have not been vaccinated. What's your response as Premier? You offered incentives. You offered incentives to unvaccinated Alberta residents to become vaccinated. Yeah, that 100% of admissions was one particular day. I think it was last Thursday. But overall, 93% of our COVID ICU patients um, are unvaccinated. And that's what's driving this right. <clears throat> By the way, our numbers right now are pretty much identical to those of Saskatchewan, but just on a, on a four, four times larger scale because of population. But they and, uh, and Saskatchewan and Alberta went into this uh, period with the same tied at the same lowest level of vaccination in the country. That's really the problem. Um, the folks who are not vaccinated, that their decision is not just a personal one. What we're trying to convey, what I'm trying to convey with patience and respect. Uh, not stigmatization, is that their choice not to get vaccinated does have very serious consequences on everyone else, particularly right now in our hospitals. We've um, had to postpone thousands of surgeries in order to open up surge ICU beds to accommodate unvaccinated people. And many of them, this is not just folks who are very elderly, a growing number because of the uh, Delta variant, are attacking, um, the, the disease is attacking uh, younger middle-aged people, uh, in uh, who many of whom end up in ICU. Yeah. So we've been pushing the vaccine super hard. We're the only province with a, a cash incentive, $100 if you get a jab. We've had a multi-million dollar lottery. We're paying yeah. we're offering a billing code to doctors to call their patients to give them information. We, we've we given people three hours of paid time off work to get vaccinated. And now, so deep. Yeah. When, when you when you talk about the things that you've done, the initiatives you've undertaken, I understand that you're also being blamed. And I want to hear your. I want to hear from you how you respond to some of the challenges that have been put in your place. I also want to talk, want to talk about what the province has uh, to look forward to, but you're being blamed by the opposition, which is. Not, not surprising. You, you're being challenged by municipal politicians who say you dropped the ball managing the COVID crisis. You dropped it for months. You were too liberal, no pun intended, to uh, in opening up the province in the summer of 2021. What do you say to your critics? Well, what I say is that we've always tried to pursue uh, a balanced approach to protect lives and livelihoods based on uh, the, the best public health information and evidence. Uh, I don't think we were wrong to drop public health restrictions in the summer, July the 1st. We saw numbers continue to go down for uh, uh, five to six weeks after that. Case numbers went down, very low hospitalizations, fewer than 100 people in hospital. How could I have possibly justified what the opposition and others wanted, which was uh, continued damaging restrictions when there was no evidence to support that. Oh, I remember now, calls. Did, did, I remember calls going out saying uh, in in the early summer in June, saying we have to be more like Alberta and open up our provinces. Right. There was and a lot there of that was a lot being of positive said. coverage about that. Look at it, look, Roy. As I've said, um, every government in the world has been trying to make its way through an uncertain period through trial and error. Now, I will say this: we were um, too optimistic, but it was not just an unfounded optimism. The analysis done by our public health team of the of how other jurisdictions like the United Kingdom and Israel had done at similar levels of vaccination suggested 
that we would we would be able to open up and not rely on restrictions to manage the disease below the maximum capacity of our healthcare. Were system. there templates so, available to you in other provinces that you could have followed? Well, I would say that broadly speaking, our policy has been pretty similar to British Columbia's. Uh, they've had, I think, they've had slightly better results. Um, but our fatality rate going into this wave is uh, 27, 27% below the Canadian number. And and so I, I think Alberta and BC have been closest in their approach. Um, I do think they have, I do know they've had a higher vaccination rate and a higher level of compliance with public health measures. And that, that's part of the issue right now. Roy. I mean, I know there's some people out there who would think the solution now is you just put impose a hard lockdown on everyone. First of all, that makes no sense for the 80% of the population that's vaccinated who are at much lower levels of risk of transmission and, and extremely lower level risks of, of hospitalization. But secondly, it's the roughly 20% of the adult population who are unvaccinated who are less likely to observe public health measures. So that's why we've brought in a, a proof of vaccination program, and, and we think it's going well. But as I say, um, I think Alberta and BC have been uh, broadly similar uh, Ontario, I'll remind you, and this is, I'm not criticizing any province, everybody's been struggling. Ontario was in a very similar situation to where we are in terms of pressure on healthcare system in the spring, despite much more intensive uh, restrictions on society. Mm-hmm. Manitoba, we had to take some of their ICU patients in the spring, despite them having what I would characterize as a pretty hard lockdown. So I, I know that it's easy to sit on the sidelines and criticize governments across the world for their response, but we're all trying to do our best. Uh, and in the case of Alberta, our, perce- our, our perspective has been that, that restriction should be a last and limited resort, but not a first and, and kind of permanent right. resort. What is your view of what happened in the federal election? We have a return to a minority government, which is essentially the same as we had prior to the $610 million being spent for this election. And uh, Mr. Trudeau made it a habit of attacking you. Um, directly and indirectly during the campaign. What do you make of all that? Well, I understand he attacked uh, at least five premiers. It's unfortunate. Uh, it, it was a very divisive uh, campaign run by uh, Mr. Trudeau and the Liberal Party, um, which didn't seem to ultimately yield any any gains for them electorally. I, I, I think most Canadians still wonder why we had this election when we did. Um, I... Um, I, what I, all I can tell you is here in Alberta, nearly 90% of the MPs that were returned uh, uh, were uh, are conservative MPs. And uh, and people in this province remain, I think, rightly very concerned about the uh, fairly open hostility of Mr. Trudeau's government uh, to, as Brad Wall was saying on your program, uh, to our largest industries. Uh, you, as I've said on your program many times, Alberta's oil and gas sector is the largest sector of the Canadian economy. Hundreds of thousands of jobs across the country depend upon it. And it's it's very frustrating for people here and in Saskatchewan to see a government that uh, is isn't just indifferent, but actually sometimes hostile to to, to all of those workers. West East relations. I asked Mr. Wall about that yesterday. How do you see it? What are the concerns uh, between Alberta and Ottawa? Uh, just Western Canada and East and Central yeah. Canada. Well, I mean, look. Obviously, the part of that is the deep history, uh, uh, Roy, of uh, the West. Going back over a century, being the kind of uh, the, ba- the basin of resources that were often that our perception historically has been exploited by by Ottawa, and uh, without the population base here to have significant uh, voice share in Ottawa. I mean, um, I love Atlantic Canada, I truly do, and I've, there's 
I've, there are premiers out there I have good relations with, but just as a historical matter, I mean, we we have about as many seats in Alberta with four and a half million people as they do in Atlantic Canada with less than half the population. So that frustrates people here, and, uh, and understandably so. That is why we are pushing for what we call a fair deal, which would be some uh, systemic reforms, uh, including to things like equalization, but also uh, equal representation in the Senate, appointment of democratically elected senators. We're going to be having an election coming up, devolution of power to the provinces. We basically want to be treated the same way as Quebec mm-hmm. is in the Federation. Uh, what, what's good for Quebec should be good for other provinces. But instead, what we seem to have developed is a kind of two-tier federalism. I don't think that's good for the long-term future of the country. Let me come back to Alberta and uh, your position as premier. There's an upcoming leadership uh, review. Do you consider this review of your held by your party to have merit? And how much does that occupy your mind? And do you, Premier, ever think it may be preferable to just leave politics entirely? Well, <laughs> yes, it has merit. It's uh, a bylaw of my party that there's always going to be a review after each election cycle. Secondly, uh, it doesn't occupy uh, much time for me because I have to be focused on the crisis that we are currently facing. That's uh, our government and our caucus is united in that, that we, we need to uh, take on this challenge and focus on uh, the other two big priorities of this government, which is jobs in the economy and fighting for a fair deal. So I'm not going to get distracted by internal politics. As I say, it's no secret that, that um, some people in my party are very frustrated that there have been any public health restrictions. They, some don't like the proof of vaccination program that we had to roll out. My job is to do my best to serve the province and the broader public interest in this context uh, to protect the healthcare system, not to respond to every uh, single internal critic. If I did that, I think it would be irresponsible. And you feel that given the circumstances, given the reality on the ground in Alberta, that, uh, that you have the COVID situation, the COVID pandemic, the fourth wave, under as much control as you possibly can have at this time going forward, yes? Yeah, well, let me, let me put it this way. Um, I, we haven't yet so fully seen the impact of the measures we introduced about 10 days ago. I think once we see that um, with with a, the positivity rate coming down, the rate of transmission coming down, and an increase in healthcare capacity, I think we, we can get through this, but it's really going to be up to the decisions that people make, particularly the unvaccinated. That's the most important thing. We have had a good uptick in additional vaccines, but the most important thing is for people to make the choice to protect themselves, their loved ones, and our hospitals by stepping up to get vaccinated. And you're hopeful. Well, I, I think there's good reason to be. Um, I, I have confidence in Albertans to do the right thing. There have been some late deciders on the vaccines, um, but we're starting to see that change, and that's what makes me hopeful. Okay. Well, as we know, 55% of Canadians, according to a National Post poll, want Mr. Trudeau to resign. Uh, I'm receiving emails right now telling me what a good guy you are and emails that are telling me you're not such a good guy. So uh, this is probably uh, not to be, uh, well, I'm ex- I was expecting that. The, the defeat of Donald Trump in last year's U.S. election did not herald the end of populism, and he did receive 75 million-plus votes, which was more votes than he won, I believe, in 2016. You point to Europe and particularly recent elections in Germany and the Netherlands as examples that populist parties on the far right are doing reasonably well. Could you fill that out a little bit for us? Yeah, you take a look at where populist parties on the right exist and you find that they're doing uh, pretty well. You know, today in Germany's national election, the AfD will get around 10%, 11% of the vote. 
and another populist party should get about 4% of the vote and not enter Parliament. And that's the trend that you see around the world. And, of course, you saw it in Canada with the PPC getting nearly 5% of the vote on Monday. Right. Now, you're right in Italy that there are two right-wing populist parties that combined for 41% of the national vote. And in Italy, the center-right is almost exclusively populist. Does that herald a national shift in sentiment for voters? The Italian establishment has been completely rejected by the uh, Italian people. That if you add in a third populist party, the five-star movement, nearly 60% of Italians have embraced some form of anti-establishment populism from the center to the right. Yeah, this is a uh, something that Brussels is going to have to deal with within the next two years because there's simply no way that the Italian establishment will win the next election. How do you define, how do you define populism? Well, populism to me is a political movement that argues that an elite has unjustly taken control of a country and deprived people unjustly of their share. And so that's something that can be used by the left or the right, depending on who they argue is the elite and what they argue the means they've used to unjustly deprive someone are, which is why you can say that Bernie Sanders is a populist because he describes capitalist uh, share owners as the elite. At the same time, well, Donald Trump is a populist, too, because he identifies bureaucrats and academics as the elite. And you point to Britain's Boris Johnson, a practitioner of populist politics, and you're right, he's gaining votes in previously strong left-leaning constituencies. What's going on there? Yeah, yeah what's going on there is that blue-collar or you know, college, non-college whites in Britain have been moving away from the Labour Party for about 20 years. And with Boris Johnson, and to a lesser extent Theresa May, you had somebody who finally understood that those people were open to voting for the right as long as they were given what they believed they were due, which is protection. They want protection from the large downsides of economic activity, and they want protection from unfair competition from migrants. And that's what Brexit was all about, and that has given the Conservative Party a majority in 2019, and it is continuing to be a bedrock of their support in polls ever since. Well, I watched uh, with great interest the British election, uh, and I watched BBC in 2019, and they were just becoming more and more and more shocked, the observers and the analysts were, over the labor-intensive, labor party-intensive vote that had normally been present in the Midlands and in the north of England, shifting to the Conservatives and Boris Johnson, and they were they had great difficulty explaining to one another why this was going on. But you're pointing out that's just that's just the way of the world in England. It's well, it's not just in England; it's pretty much everywhere. Yeah. I was in London on election night. And- I made my predictions on Twitter, and they weren't that far off from what actually happened. You've been very good at that. (laughs) Thank you. You The thing is that it was hiding in plain view, is that the data were showing it for months, and common sense and understanding who these people were, what they valued, where the modern labor party was, uh, it should not have been a surprise to BBC commentators on election 
night, but evidently it was. So, Mr. Olson, I, when I was reading your uh, your column, your op-ed, Europe is proof right-wing populism is here to stay, Austria just stood up uh, to me, stood out to me. An anti-immigrant party sits, you write, comfortably atop the polls. Austria, again? Well, you know, it was that what, what happened in Austria was the traditional center-right party a few years ago, the Austrian People's Party, was in freefall. It had fallen to third place, and the hardcore populist Freedom Party was in first place. And so what the center-right party did was ditch its leadership, put in a 31-year-old person who was known for being suspicious of Muslim immigrants, Sebastian Kurz, as their leader, and uh, overnight they became the first party, and they've won every election since and continue to lead the polls because they know the people of Austria that Sebastian Kurz will respect markets and respect the national identity of Austria and protect Austrians from their competition from migrants. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I have spoken in the past with my next guest, Elizabeth. She's a 40-year-old Ontario woman who was born with cancer and couldn't tell anyone until she was three and could begin to talk about the horrific pain that she suffered. That was when a grapefruit-sized tumor was found at the base of her spine. Throughout her life, Elizabeth Lizzie has undergone significant surgery after surgery. Radiation has destroyed the structure of the base of her spine. Between 2004 and 2006, Lizzie had three reconstructive spinal surgeries done by surgeons who'd never previously performed the procedure. Since then, she's endured constant sciatica. Doctors today don't know whether removing the surgical implants would make life better or worse for Lizzie. So she lives with terrible, chronic, constant agony. And in recent years, because of illegal opioid abuse, chronic pain patients have suffered. Lizzie's multi-decade quality-of-life-restoring medications have been cut back dramatically. She can now no longer engage in activities which brought her joy like her artwork, the pain is just too severe. Her doctor is retiring. can imagine why. Tired of being questioned by the College of Physicians and Surgeons. And at the college, they insist, and I know they're listening, they insist they're not telling doctors not to prescribe opioid pain medications. Well, I've got doctors who are telling me off the air now, but we had them telling us on the air a couple of years ago, that they were being told to not prescribe or to very, very uh, cautiously prescribe. And so doctors, and we had doctors say this on the air, my license is more important to me in my life than prescribing the medications. It was an American doctor who said that to us, but I've had Canadian doctors 
uh, corroborate that off the air. So Elizabeth has no replacement doctor yet and has concerns that her medications may be cut even further. It's time that we speak with Elizabeth. She, um, she's been a guest on this program before. She recorded a conversation with a member of the College of Physicians and Surgeons, and we played that back on the air about two years ago, and the total indifference of the individual from the college whose job it was to, uh, to represent the interests of pain patients, the indifference was really um, stunning. Uh, Elizabeth's story is available in a Chatelaine article from 2019, headlined, This is Destroying My Life. Please do something. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Ray. This is a question that matters. It's not a throwaway question, but it often is when people ask it. How are you? Um, I'm, I'm alive. <laughs> um, I'm in pain every day, and uh, I'm not getting enough medication to at least just be comfortable. When people think of pain, they think about perhaps pain that they've experienced, maybe even the pain of a broken bone or something that is problematic but heals over a period of time. When you think of pain and the pain you live live with, Lizzie, what is it like? What is it like to live with the pain that you live with 24-7? It never goes away. It never gets better. It's only getting worse as I get older. And there's no relief. There's no day to look forward to when it might be gone. It'll never be gone. And, so. and, and you're unable to do the things, the simple things in life that other people can do and just get enjoyment out of. You're, you're, you can't do those. No. Just everything I do is, is causes me severe pain. Uh, I struggle just to the day-to-day chores to keep my house together and um, take care of my dog and, and me. And that, that, that is just an excruciating chore. So you told me you can't sit down. No. You can't lie down. No. But you need to. Uh, you, you, you get some relief from walking for a little bit, and then that becomes a significant problem. And, and you're, 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 your life has just dominated by this pain. Yeah, it is. And uh, the walking is the only relief I get, and I can't walk 24-7. Eventually that tires me out, and there's just there's no relief. So the medications that you were getting, and these are prescription medications that are the prescriptions written by a doctor and the prescriptions filled by a pharmacist. The prescriptions that you were receiving, when you were receiving the medication that the amount of medication that helped you, how much did that improve your life? It improved my life significantly. Uh, there was at least a decade where the, doc- the pain specialist I had had found the proper dose to keep me at that provided me great relief, and I was able to do art, and I was doing art shows and uh, selling my art online, and really, I really enjoyed painting and um, doing all that, but I haven't painted in a couple years now. Um, I can't stand in an easel. I can't sit at, a, at an art desk. I, it's just impossible. But they uh, cut my prescriptions down by less than half of what I had been getting overnight, and it just caused me great agony. 
and took everything my entire life away. And you were receiving what is generically described as opioid pain medications. Yes. And you were in consultation with your doctor on a regular basis about the medications you received, the the quantity you received, the strength of the medication you received. This wasn't something that uh, they wrote your prescription with a never-ending refill formula, right? No, I saw my doctor every month. So... When you were told that your medication was going to be reduced by more than half, how did that conversation take place? What were you told? Um, My doctor told me when I came in that day that he had bad news for me and uh, that he wouldn't be able to continue prescribing to me what I'd been getting um, that was helping me. And uh, that day he wrote me out a prescription for less than half of what I had been getting. And um, I begged him and pleaded with him to to not do this, and he said it was out of his control, that um, he was under investigation for prescribing what he had been prescribing to me, so he had to make these changes immediately or lose his license. So he felt under duress from the medical authorities yeah. Over prescribing what was helping you live your life. Yeah. You're not an addict. No. You don't take drugs for entertainment value. No. I've actually met with an addiction doctor twice now just to have in my file that I'm not an addict. And the addiction doctor, uh, when I saw him both times, he said that I should feel insulted for being sent to him. Um... You've lived your whole life in pain. Yeah. Now, I told a bit of your story, but it's better if we hear it from you. Tell us, please, from the beginning, what it is that you have experienced, being, beginning with being born with cancer. <clears throat> I was born with a large grapefruit-sized tumor on my spine, but it was completely internal, so nobody knew it was there. And I cried a lot. They thought I was colicky, but... Nobody found the tumor until I was around three years old. I, it really hurt for me to sit down, and I started complaining whenever I was forced to sit down that I couldn't sit. And um, I talked about how much it hurt on my backside, and my back hurt. And they, uh, my mom was bringing me to doctors, and t- she took me to quite a few doctors uh, that had told her that I was just uh, not eating the right foods and. Um, that my mom was hysterical, and she finally found a doctor that ran the tests and found the tumor, and I was on an operating table that day when they found it. And uh, they removed the tumor. They removed the base of my spine. I did a year and a half of chemo and 20 days of cobalt radiation. And um, I... uh, the, the radiation destroyed all the uh, muscles and fat tissue in my hips and lower back and that area and uh, caused me dif- like a dif- disfigurement. And um, I eventually got reconstructive surgery for that in 2004. And uh, they had never done what they had to do for me. Uh, a couple of neurosurgeons and a plastic surgeon um, decided what they could thought they could do and they did three surgeries and 
then since then, I, those surgeries were supposed to fix my disfigurement and reduce my pain, but they ended up creating new pain. And um, they, they fixed the disfigurement a, a small bit, not much, not what I had hoped, but um, the significant increase in pain um, has been uh, caused me great agony since then. And I've seen the doctors other doctors as well about it and they don't know what to do um to to fix it it's the implant is pinching my sciatic nerve and um because of how long it's been like this it could have could have caused permanent damage and removing it could increase my pain um they suspect so they don't they they're not sure nobody knows what to do and the simple thing that they could do is return you to the prescription that you will uh, were issued for a decade and allow you to transcend this agony that you live in and and re- return to some quality of life. That would be the simplest thing to do, yes. Um, yours were cut overnight by more than 50%, yeah? Yeah, yes, they were. Could you walk across the room really easily right now? Um, I, I can walk across the room, but it causes me pain. I'm sitting right now, and that's causing me pain. It hurts to sit. It's a hurt to sit down my entire life. They've never been able to get rid of that pain for me. What do you want to say to the people who regulate and control the opioid pain medications that provide relief, uh, quality of life, and opportunity to enjoy their lives somewhat again? What do you want to say to those people? You're not saving anybody's life by by cutting our medication. Uh, you're you're destroying lives. My life has been destroyed, and other pain patients like me, lives have been destroyed. Some have been ended due to this, and nobody is being saved by by cutting off our medication. Do you find any doctors who want to help you? No, the I've been searching for new doctors, and as soon as a doctor finds out what medication I take, they don't even want to see me. So you can't even get get on it. Get a, on a doctor's patient roster. No, it's very difficult. I haven't found a new doctor. I will lose my doctor in December, and I'm in consultations currently to find a new doctor. I don't know what will happen come December or the new year. That's really scary. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty terrified right now. I, I, I don't know how... We can be so gratuitously, systematically cruel and put you through this kind of agony every single day of your life. We're supposed to be a compassionate, caring society. And the stories like yours are many. There's no comfort in that for you, Elizabeth. No. But, but there are so many stories of people who are struggling and, uh, you know, quite rightly. I mean, I, I see emails right now coming in saying, but if I were a drug addict and, and buying drugs, if I didn't have a medical issue, a medical reason to be uh, taking opioids, if I were a um, addicted to drugs, I, I would get help. But but you can't get the medications that you require to simply live your life. In the United States, there was maybe the courts need to get involved because in the U.S. a few weeks ago, a court awarded $7 million in damages against doctors in a pain clinic to a family whose husband and father had committed suicide after pain medications were significantly withdrawn. $7 million. Maybe the courts need to get involved. 
Elizabeth, I, uh, you and I have been talking for years, and there's, there's no way that you should be denied what, what you require to live your life and have some, some substantial improvement to your life and some substantial reduction to the pain you're suffering. Uh, I, I've, I've talked about this, about this on the air. My wife, when she was dying of cancer, and a particularly aggressive and nasty cancer, was in terrible, terrible, terrible pain. And they provided her with enough pain medication, which probably would have satisfied our seven-pound Yorkie had he needed it, but it certainly wasn't good enough enough for her. And that's just systemic. And, and would you say that your sense is that doctors are scared? Yeah, the doctors are terrified of losing their licenses, and I'm sure that's why as soon as they find out what I take, they don't want to even see me. They don't want to deal with that headache. Pfizer-BioNTech have developed a COVID vaccine for children between the ages of 5 and 11. I didn't know the kids as early as 5 or between the ages of 5 and 11 could be vaccinated. Let's talk about uh, what goes into vaccine development, particularly of this kind. What regulatory issues must be satisfied before such a vaccine is deemed safe for children? Paul Lucas is the former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. And uh, Mr. Lucas has been on this program on a number of occasions. Paul, thank you very much for coming uh, back on the program. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you, Roy. What goes into the development? Let's start at the beginning. What goes into the development of vaccines? How does it all start? And then what happens if you start to develop a vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds? Yeah, well, it's an extensive process, as we've talked about before. And um, basically where you start is uh, in phase one trials. So you give give the vaccine uh, to a small number of candidates to make sure that it's safe and it doesn't cause anything uh, significant from a side effect point of view. So... That's where they start. If it passes that test, then the company would take it to the next level, which is phase two studies, uh, which is basically an extension, an expansion of the number of uh, individuals who are going to receive the vaccine. And the purpose of those studies would be to uh, make sure that the vaccine actually works well, and again, continuing to test whether the side effect profile is okay. And then finally, they get to phase three, which is uh, very large studies. And with these vaccines, we've been talking about 30,000 uh, individuals receiving the vaccine. And again, they're studying effectiveness and side effects. And once that data is in, they have a pretty good indication that the vaccine is effective and safe. And then they proceed to putting a submission together to the FDA and Health Canada and other regulatory bodies uh, for approval. So that's where that starts. So, Paul, I understand the uh, the different phases in phase one, the trials on individuals to see what the response and the reaction is to the specific vaccine. Would that also be the case with 5 to 11-year-olds? Is that phase one still carried out? Uh, not specifically, but um, let me just say, first of all, what great news this is. Um, you know, Roy, um, you know, we have 80-plus percentage of Canadians or eligible Canadians vaccinated now, and it's uh, it's great that we're going to be able to vaccinate children under 12. Uh, there's another cohort in there under 5, and they're doing studies on those children as well. But where, where companies start with respect to children is uh, to make sure that it's safe, uh, so they give it to a number of, of children, make sure that there's no significant reaction. Uh, but then they do dose-ranging studies. So they need to find the dosage that is actually going to work 
um, work with a minimum of side effects. So they push the dose down, down, down uh, until they've got an effective dose, but that it causes a minimal of side effects. So that's really where they start and uh, and finish. And once they've done that, then they can run it in uh, a few thousand patients uh, or children to see um, whether it protects them against the virus. And that's what Pfizer has done. They've run that study in over 2,000 children. Uh, and in addition to seeing whether or not it protects them against the disease, they actually measure their immune response um, in terms of antibody protection and that sort of thing to make sure that it's actually being effective. So and nobody is immune to the uh, vaccine, regardless of age. Uh, and, uh, you know, children probably certainly have a, a more efficient um, defense system, internal defense system, immunity system, but, but they're not, they're not uh, impervious to, uh, to, to the COVID um, virus. No, that's right, not at all. And uh, that's why, again, this is very important that we, that we vaccinate young children, because although they don't experience the kind of symptoms that adults experience, you know, a number of, a certain percentage of children, if they get COVID, um, there are pretty significant ramifications of that. So we really do need to protect the children. And, you know, if we can do that, hopefully we can get closer to herd immunity and at the same time, you know, protect our schools, keep them open, keep the kids going there and keep them safe. Yeah. You and I had conversations, several conversations about the slow rollout of the vaccines in this country because of the federal government's inability to get its act together in the in the beginning. But as you look now at the percentage of Canadians who are vaccinated at least once over 80 percent, we can now really gauge the efficacy of the vaccines. Yes, absolutely. The efficacy and the safety, um, you know, clearly around the world now, hundreds of millions of people have received these vaccines. So, you know, the impact has been dramatic, Roy, and I think, you know, we talked about that when they were first discovered, that these are miracle vaccines, and they truly are, and I think it's important we don't forget that. When you get efficacy rates over 90%, and we haven't heard much about side effects of, of the mRNA vaccines, particularly, um, you know, these these really are miracle vaccines, and uh, they, they are having a major impact. Um, you know, if you go back 20, 25 years, you know, this pandemic would still be going on. They'd still be looking for vaccines. And, um, you know, this, this pandemic would probably go on for another three years. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, Paul, final question for you. When do you think it's likely that the vaccine for the 5 to 11-year-olds will be available? Yeah, well, I just based on previous experience and the fact that they do have the data now, uh, they will be putting, Pfizer will be putting together that data now uh, for their submission. They will submit it to the regulatory bodies, and they will very quickly review that data. It's not, you know, it's not a brand new product, so uh, they can review it fairly quickly. I suspect uh, they will, we will begin to see approvals uh, clearly before the end of the year, and, you know, I think we would hope that uh, vaccination would begin before the end of the year. All right, here's something I've wanted to do for a while, and uh, we, we did it once about two years ago with two young people who at the time were working across the glass from me. Uh, currently, I have uh, William Weber, who is the technical producer for this program, and Tom McKay, who's the call screener and also deals with all of our guests. They're in their 20s, and we talk sometimes about uh, 20-somethings and how challenging life can be if you're in your 20s, trying to build a career, trying to build a life, Certainly different for them than it was for me in my uh, 20s, uh, early 20s, and the late 1960s. And 
boy, it was a different time. But we talk about the generational challenges, you know, trying to get a job, a career, buy a home, develop your life. So, uh, gentlemen, William Weber, uh, or like I, I like to call him. Willie M. Weber. That's right. I, was, <laughs> I, I hear him say William Weber, and I said, no, no, your great rock and roll radio name is Willie M. Weber. It's the <laughs> Willie M. Weber Show. <laughs> How are you, Will? Oh, I'm doing just fine, Roy. How about yourself? Just great, and thank you for agreeing to do this. Anytime, anytime. Mr. Tom McKay, call screener, who handles all the guests on this program, and that can be a challenge from time to time. How are you, Tom? I'm doing good, and I 100% agree with you on that one, 100%, sure. I know, you guys are terrific. (laughs) So, look, let me ask you some fundamental questions out of the gate here, and then we'll just, the two of you talk to each other, and we'll try to get some information out from your perspective about what it's like to be in in, in, in your 20s. So uh, your career interests, let's talk about your career interests. Uh, Just give us a brief idea of what it is that you want to do, um, how you prepare for that, and how did you find yourself here instead of doing what you wanted to do with your career? I know there's lots of time for you to still do it. Well, let's start with you. What do you want to do? What interests you? And how did you find yourself here at at the radio station? Well, I've just taken a a shine to the technical aspect of uh, media production, so when I went into college, my stated goal was to become a video editor, and I've been effectively doing that since I was about 12 years old, you know, more than a decade, where I'd just get my friends together with, you know, a little DV camera, and we'd shoot, and just shoot, and shoot, and shoot, and we'd call it a movie at the end of the day, and we've just been working on that since then. I did uh, high school classes, looked into all the necessary technicals that I would need to understand. Uh, the internet's been a great help with that. And, uh, well, that naturally sort of fed into getting a job here, I would say, because I do a lot of the technicals. A you lot do, of, yeah. Um, and you're very good at it. Oh, thank you very much. And you, I know you edit things. You edit film and you, or video, and you edit, or you could edit film, but you edit video and you edit audio. Yes, I do. I've edited a few documentaries, uh, documentary shorts, I should specify. Okay, so how hard is it? for you to get a job full-time doing that, what you're trained for, what you really want to do? It is a bit of a nightmare <laughs> because the uh, main thing is just that there's a lot of consolidation going on in, uh, in the industry, at least in the sort of uh, lower-end sect of it, not in the global TV sect. You know, right. a, f- a few right. steps down, there's getting a lot of started. consolidation. Exactly. And yeah. getting started is just very difficult because you have to have a really good reel. And when you go to college for this, like I did, you can get a reel, no problem. But the problem is that uh, your college stuff is usually terrible. So gig- gigs are tough to find. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Tom, what about you? What did you train for? What do you want to be doing? How did you find yourself here? Well, for me, I got into radio because of my love of music, like anything music related. And you are a musician. Yes, I am. I play guitar, and I uh, also do Cookie Monster Growls for anybody who is curious about that. Do it. You want me to do Cookie Monster Growls? Go for it. Okay. I'm on the radio right now, so I'm doing this stuff right now. (laughs) That's kind of... It's, it is good. It, I have not warmed up enough. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I got into music uh, when I was in high school, and I wanted to pursue that in some form as a career, whether it was being a musician or what I'm doing right now here in radio, or even just uh, uh, reviewing music online or anything of that caliber. Even mixing and producing music. Is so something- you're doing that sort of thing on your own on a freelance basis. At this point. Well, the, the, the 
reviewing music kind of thing is more of a of a very time consuming hobby more than anything else. Uh, but in terms of freelance, I'm actually uh, in the voiceover business, uh, and I've managed to uh, get uh, get into that pretty quickly uh, early on. I think well early on, maybe I was like 21, so a couple. Okay, of years how old ago. are you guys now? 25. 24. Okay. So how frustrating can it be? And think about your peers as well. People, you know, your friends, people you talk to. How, how frustrating can it be uh, to be looking for specific kind of work and, uh, and, and, and go after your expected goals in life? How challenging is that, Tom? Uh, it depends, really. Uh, for me, it's not really that much of a challenge because, uh, again, like for me, I – I've focused most of my energy into the online world, which now since the internet has basically blossomed into the beautiful, beautiful thing that it is nowadays, uh, it's actually created a lot of opportunities for me and arguably a lot of people. As for peers, it again, it depends on the kind of field you're in. I know for many of my peers, getting a decent job is very, very tough nowadays. It doesn't matter their education background. Uh, I know a buddy of mine who is an educational assistant he bust. He worked a lot. Works his to get, tail off. Yeah, he worked his tail. Say something else, but it's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. He worked his tail off to be able to get into uh, working in the school board right, as a right. as a substitute educational assistant. But that was like uh, quite a bit after he graduated from okay. college. Okay, so it's a frustrating experience for twenty somethings uh, to to get the kind of jobs that you may want. You're a, you're sort of you're an entrepreneur, right? Let's. Would I be correct in Tom saying you're a bit of an entrepreneur? Well, that's kind of tooting my own horn here, but uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, Will, what about you? What are you hearing about how difficult it is? And you, uh, you, you share a residence with some friends, and, uh, um, and and what are they telling you? What do you hear about the challenges about finding the kind of work people want? Well, a good friend of mine is an incredible programmer and is currently working to assemble the doors that go on bathroom stalls if that helps to paint the picture Uh, because the everyone wants the highest uh, highest level of training possible in their uh, bottom line recruits more or less you'll often see uh, let's stick with uh, programming you use programming languages you'll see one that's been released very recently and the uh, the job requirements will say, oh, you must have three years' experience with this gotcha. software uh, that just came out like three years ago. And it's the expectations are very, very harrowing. And when you apply, it can take you know, months for a reply sometimes. So you take, you take what's available to you. How much, of a, how much of an influence or a hindrance or maybe a help at times has the pandemic proven to be as far as getting work is concerned? Tom, what about you? Again, it really depends. Again, for me, uh, the online world has been my savior in that one. Because once the pandemic hit, once uh, once uh, beauty beauty queen Trudeau canceled the entire country and locked everything down, essentially my other These job... guys work with me too long. This, this, <laughs> <one here. laughs> this is how you know we've been here for a long time. But uh, but no, once he, once he shut everything down, all of a sudden my uh, second job at the time, uh, which is at the movie theater, closed down because obvious reasons. Uh, and that did pose a huge problem because I didn't know if I'd be able to get the job back. I didn't know how I was going to be okay. able to uh, okay. supply the rest of the Are income. you worried for your futures? A little bit. I'm personally not as long as the internet continues to maintain uh, its relevance in modern culture. So you can make a living. You can you can build a life for yourselves. Or, mm-hmm. Will, what about you? How worried are you about getting what you want to do? Uh, 
It's the whole scope of um, editing is changing a little bit from what I was taught initially. It's all uh, a lot of the rules that I was taught to follow are just being broken left, right, and center right. online, and even in a lot of uh, films. So it just immediately my style has been going out of style, and that's. Do you find the, yourself being challenged by? You're 25. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself being challenged by 18 or 19-year-olds who are coming out of the system? Yes, in fact. A lot of them are absolutely phenomenal homegrown shooters and editors. They learned how to do this all on their own, starting with their, their iPhones, and they've gotten to a level where they can just produce a, a, an amazing social media-grade video in maybe five hours. As you look forward, what are your goals in life, if you don't mind my asking? What are your objectives, Tom? What do you want to accomplish? What 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 do you really want to to do? And what do you want your life to be? And do you feel confident that given today's climate, you can make that happen? Uh, well, that's hard to say. With the internet, again, it's very it's very possible for me to be able to make a career out of music in some form. Again, with anything to do with it. So for me, it's definitely something that is possible. I don't know how close on the horizon, though. I can imagine when I'm in my 60s, it'll be I'll be at my peak. I guarantee it. Are you able to make a living selling music uh, online? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> ask any musician, and I've asked plenty of musicians. The majority of uh, music sales is uh, minuscule. In fact, there's actually discussions uh, where for like the typical uh, LP albums that are basically out of style by this point because they're so expensive to make. You're basically selling them at a loss. Okay. What about you, Will? I mean, you. Uh, what, what, what do you want to accomplish? What do you want? To, geez, I sound like your dad. What, <laughs> what, what, what do you want to accomplish? Do you feel hopeful? It's it's a very mixed bag right now, but I I'd like to be generally hopeful because you're uh, a positive guy. You're both very positive. Yes, yes, we, we do. <laughs> well, we I'm trying to be nice doesn't we, work. We we do our best to uh, maintain. Uh, a, st- a stiff upper lip in the face of adversity—that's that's for certain. Uh, it, I'm the main thing I want to do is just put my name on something that I'm damn proud of. You know, yeah, good for you. And I, I'm I'm proud to be working on this show, and it's wonderful. But it's just if I, I could also put something on my name that is that's that yours. I'm damn proud of, that's that yours. is mine, yeah. that I can also. Make a decent living out of. I I love working here, but okay. He's applying right? for a job. Everybody, get a in touch bit. with me. I'll put you in touch with Will. Uh, My phone number is five five five. I wouldn't want to lose you too, but I, I understand. Um, what about relationships? Is is it more difficult? Is it difficult to keep a relationship or build a relationship? And I've heard this said. That given today's climate, econ- economic and health climate, that it's difficult to build and maintain relations. Right? Wrong? What is it? Oh, one hundred percent. I've 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 been in a long-term relationship for a while now, almost about six years. I met her in uh, college, and we happened to be in the same program, and we just we clicked like that, and that was great. And especially because we were always talking to each other, we were always there. But then. Right around the pandemic with the the social distancing, that took a real toll. And then in order f- uh, to get her job... Come on, you're not, you're not two meters apart, are you? No, no not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. We, we, move, we, we're, we live together now. But, but for a time when we didn't there live together... There was a time when I was your age where you would not have admitted that. 
what, what, what about you, Tom? When it comes to relationships, is it? Uh, well, you tell me. Uh, not, uh, not with like work or anything like that. Uh, well, work keeps me busy, but relationships, that's mostly just my own damn fault. Uh, <laughs> with just me, who I am personality wise, I just don't click with people. So relationships are basically non-optional in my books. 20 years from now, we have three minutes left here. 20 years from now, where do you want to be, Tom? What do you want to be doing? I want to continue to work in music, whether it's here on the radio, in talk radio, working on your show 20 years from now, who knows? Uh, or I guarantee to... you, you will not be working on my show in 20 years. <laughs> you, you don't know that. I you don't do know so. That. Oh, yeah, I do. Uh, uh, either that or working in uh, audio well, production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Working in audio production, sell, uh, being, uh, once again, being a musician or just continuing with my uh, my work talking about music on YouTube. Uh, anything, whatever I plan on doing with that, it's going to hopefully continue do on. Do you have ex- a YouTube channel? Yes, I well, do. Well, tell us what it is. Uh, my YouTube channel is Metal Robot Reviews. It's a uh, metal music review channel, and it's uh, mostly comedy-based. It allows, it's just an excuse for me to tell jokes on the internet and always get made fun of for it. Okay, Metal Robot Reviews. Yes? That is correct, yes. Okay, 20 years from now. 20 years from now, Roy... Maybe own my own uh, post house where we do post production, audio, video, something like Tom was saying with a, a, a studio. That's that's the sort of thing that really lights my fire. I can see you doing that, Will. Yeah, <laughs> just got to get the startup funds together. <laughs> it always comes back to the money. Exactly. It always it, it does come to money. People require money uh, to get things started and get them going. Although. If you have the entrepreneurial spirit, and I have friends who can prove this and have proven it, that they take their enthusiasm, their energy, their dedication, their determination, and they turn that into very successful lives. And success is what you define it to be yourself. You'll you'll decide. You guys will decide whether you're successful. Let me read you this. This is an email from Lucille. Enjoyed listening to their experience. That's you two. It doesn't appear much has changed since I was in their shoes. My first job in my field was... Sorry to experience, yet hard to get experience without the job. Finally got a break and used it as a ladder. So it's everything old is new again. Exactly. Except this, just... time, except this time, there's no mail room to work your way up from. Ah. So I there's guess... an email room. There's an email <laughs> There we go. <laughs> All right, back to work. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.